0: Good morning, Redemption. Well, today we are launching a new series called We Want a King. Uh, we want a king, the people cry in 1 Samuel 8, that passage that we just heard. That's the passage we're going to be in today. So if you have your Bible, you want to open that up, turn to 1 Samuel 8 uh, in preparation to dive into this word today. Uh, but the people cry out, we want a king in order that we may be like the nation." Yet when we reject God as king, it leads to disaster. And so this series is going to center on the rise and the fall of Israel's first few kings. It's like the ancient version of the Rise and Fall of God's Hill podcast, right? Like the God's Hill, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, and these kings, these leaders like Saul and like David who have this rise and this fall and this crash and burn. We'll be exploring themes in this series like power and brokenness like national division and personal failures and cultivating a heart after God. Uh, The point of the series is not to go, hey, these kings are good, and this king was good, and this king was bad. As we're going to see, like, they were all a mess, right? But ultimately, all these kings reveal our desperate need for Jesus as king. Now, I want to speak to the elephant in the room and the donkey in the room, as it were. (laughs) Some of you are wondering, am I going to say anything about Roe versus Wade being overturned in the national drama this weekend? And yes, I am. We'll get there. But I actually think it's a powerful case study in some of the themes that we're going to be looking at in our passage today. So, rather than kind of giving you a few quick talking head points from Josh, what I would rather do, I want us to let the Word of God frame us up this morning. And then at the end, we'll look at some implications for how we, as followers of King Jesus, respond in this moment. So, let's jump into 1 Samuel chapter 8. Starting in verse 4, we read. Then all the elders of Israel, they gathered together, and they came to Samuel. He's like the judge, the leader of the nation, of the people this time. They came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Well, We want a king, the people say, other than God. The first things we see here is that sometimes we want a king other than God. Israel demands a king other than God. They say, give us a king, Samuel, in order that we may be like the nations. So the people go to Samuel and they're like, hey, Samuel, you're on your last leg and your sons are a mess. And so we want a king like the nations. And Samuel's like, oh, man, I'm such a failure. My legacy is ruined. And God's like, it's not you, it's me. Right? It's not you, Samuel, they're rejecting. In verse 7, he says, ultimately, they have rejected me as king over them. Now, some nuance here. Israel wanting a king was not inherently bad. Earlier, back in Deuteronomy 17, when God was giving the law, God said, hey, you're going to get in the land, you'll have a king, and he gave laws for how the king could be a good king and follow him. These were things he said basically like, don't amass guns, gold, and girls, or how some scholars have put it, right? Uh, Guns going, don't amass a ton of like horses and chariots and the ancient equivalent of like tanks and AK-47s and basically referring to military might. And he says, don't amass a ton of gold, like wealth, trying to make yourself just live in luxury and be up above over all the people. And don't marry a bunch of uh, wives, foreign wives and all, which had to do with, at the time, that wasn't about like romance, but it was about like political alliance and all. And so basically what God is saying is to be a good king, don't put your ultimate trust in your military, your economic, or your political might and power, but put your trust in me. So a good king was to place himself under the law of God, to study and meditate on and learn the Torah or the the laws and commandments of God, and to follow God and to judge rightly and to seek justice in the land. So there was a good way of doing kingship where the king is under God. But the people here, they want a king like the nations, that the heart of the problem is they are rejecting God as king and placing their trust in worldly power like the pagan rulers of the nations around them who would lord it over them. Now, this is not just Israel. Uh, We want a king in our society other than God often that politics has become the new religion today and this helps explain why everyone's gone so crazy the last couple of years right There's an author I like, James K.A. Smith, and he observes how when you have the kingdom of God above you and before you, so when you have the kingdom of God above you, that God is king, he's sovereign, he's in charge of the earth, he's present, he's ruling, he's reigning, and you have the kingdom of God before you, like your future, that God's kingdom is going to come in fullness, our future is secure, that when you have that, then you can be involved in politics and in the public life of the world, but it's not everything to you, right? That if your side loses, you can go, hey, God is still sovereign and in control. And yes, the world is a mess, but the future, God's future is coming. And if your side wins, that you can celebrate and all, but you can still be humble going, yeah, but our world is still a mess and there's still much work to do. And you can be gracious towards those who disagree. But when we reject God as king, Smith observes, then politics is all you have left right? That when we lose that horizon of the kingdom before us and above us, then suddenly your world becomes more compressed and restricted and constricted and shrunken. And all your eggs are in this basket of going, our only hope is we need our person elected, we need this policy enacted, and if not, everything is lost. It's all riding on this it can feel like. And so, politics has become our new religion as a society. There was an interesting article in The Atlantic a while back <coughs> called America's Empty Church Problem. Now, the author was not a Christian as far as I know, but uh, his gist of his observation was he was looking at how those who've rejected God are becoming more and more hostile and vicious in our culture wars. He looked at how a lack of church attendance was related to things like one's posture in politics in our society. And he saw this on both the left and the right, on both the right and the left. And so he looked and he said, hey, on the right, what he observed and found was like that the most likely folks on the right uh, politically who believed that like your character doesn't matter in leadership and who were willing to put up with or even get sucked into white nationalism were those who did not attend church. Now they might still identify as Christian or call themselves even evangelical, but the marker was no church attendance, right? And this author, so he was, you know, uh, speaking more. I think much of his audience more on the left-leaning side of the spectrum. Then he said to them, "Hey, you didn't like the relig- If you don't like the religious, all right, wait till you see the irreligious, right?" Right. Now, but he also saw the same dynamics on the left too, saying he contrasted like the historic civil rights movement versus a lot of today's activism, which can espouse violence and hatred and call for blood on the streets and revolution rather than reform. And his observation was that both on the right and on the left, that when you reject God as king, all you have left, this is my words on it, right? Like when you reject God as king, all you have left is politics. And we can become more extreme and more vicious towards one another. Now, Nietzsche predicted this, right? Nietzsche, the famous kind of atheist philosopher back in 1888, he had this claim saying, I am dynamite, he said. He said, I am dynamite. And what he meant by that was going because he thought, he said, I am seeing and saying clearly what our society and civilization's rejection of God means. And what he said is now with this rejection of God, which he actually wanted, he goes, now when we get kind of reject God as king and get him out of the way, Nietzsche said this, he said, After me, there will be wars like have never been seen on earth before. Done with a spiritual fervor, all that will be left is what he called grand politics, right? Where might makes right. Because without the kingdom of God, that's all you have left. C.S. Lewis saw this too. He noticed when you get rid of God, it can fuel this us versus them mentality, and all that's left is what he called the annihilation of the other side. When you reject God as king, all you have left is politics and earthly power, which raises the question for us this morning, who do you want as king? Have you rejected God as your ultimate king? Because Redemption Church, our ultimate allegiance is not to the Democratic Party and is not to the Republican Party. It is to the kingdom of God. Amen. Our devotion is not to King Biden or to former King Trump. It is to King Jesus. Right? And our trust is not in the way of the elephant or the way of the donkey, but to the way of the lamb. Right? That That is our vision as a community of who we want to be and become. Now, this doesn't mean that we won't have political opinions. Politics is about the public life of the world, and so we should care. Involvement with like civic engagement and things is one way that we can seek to love our neighbors. But it means that we won't be controlled by partisan lines. Right? What does that look like? I've shared this in the past, but uh, these are five things that the early church was known for that we want to be known for here at Redemption as well. This comes from Larry Hurtado, a respected early church historian, and he notices how five things that made the early church stand out in the ancient Roman Empire. One was multi-ethnic community, that they were actually breaking down barriers of ethnicity and class and eating around a common table, and this was revolutionary in the ancient world. They were also known for radical care for the poor. That this was in an age before social welfare and safety nets and the Roman Empire, they they would look on and say, oh my gosh, the church cares better for the poor of the empire than we do. They were also known for their sexual ethic, where the Romans were often known for being stingy with their money and generous with their sex. The Christians were known for being generous with their money and stingy with their sex out of faithfulness to Jesus and the ethic that he called them to. The Christians were also known for sanctity of life, That they would go out to the dumpsters and the trash heaps, and they would welcome in and embrace uh, infants who had been abandoned and exposed, and they would embrace they had a culture of adoption, of welcoming in these children. And so they they stood against abortion, they stood against the abandonment of unwanted infants, but they also were known for caring for women in vulnerable straits. The church was the place that was most respected and known. If you're in trouble, that's where you go to get help to get compassion, to get support, to get people who love you and walk with you and know you. They were also known for radical forgiveness and enemy love. Even for those who were persecuting them or mistreating them, they responded with love and with sacrifice and with forgiveness. Now, as Some have observed in our society today, in our society today, if you tend to lean left, then you will get really excited probably about numbers one and two, but not so amped on numbers three and four. And if you tend to lean right, you will probably get really excited about numbers three and four and not so much about number one and two. And nobody likes number five. (laughs) Like nobody's stoked about forgiveness and enemy love and all. And yet I believe that the gospel calls us to all five that we at Redemption Church want to be a community that holds all five together because following and what this means is that following King Jesus is going to cross some party lines, right? That what this means is that if you are hoping that we are going to stop talking about race injustice or others of you are hoping that we are going to stop talking about the Christian sexual ethic, then I hate to disappoint you, but I got some bad news. Like we're not, right? Like we're not. If you are hoping that we will stop working for the poor, and if you are hoping that we will stop working for sanctity of life, then too bad. Like, we are not. As followers of King Jesus, we want to be a community that holds all of these together. We want to be faithful to Jesus, even if it means that we don't fit in the political boxes of our day. And it's not just what we stand for, it is how we stand. That we are out to love those that we disagree with. As Jake preached last week in Colossians 4, that we are to be gracious in speech and walk with wisdom towards outsiders. That we are to follow Jesus and lay our lives down for those who might see us as their enemies because that is precisely what Christ has done for us. We want to live faithfully as a community to Jesus as King. Well, what happens though when we reject God and we turn to other kings. In verse 9, God warns the people. He says to Samuel, Now then, Samuel, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him, and he said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take, somebody say take, He will... He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and the end result of all this, and you shall be his slaves. Sounds like Egypt. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Sometimes, God's greatest judgment is giving us what we want. God gives Israel what they want here, and it is a judgment. God warns them through Samuel. He says, okay, I'm going to give you this king that you're demanding from me, but I'm just before warned, here's what he's going to do. He's going to take, 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 take. That that word take shows up six times here. And God's going, he's going to take your sons and your daughters and your crops and your grain and your servants. He's going to take it all for himself. Notice the word tithe or a tenth shows up a few times here, and that should echo in our ears. That was what they were supposed to bring God as king. And so there's a sense here that the allegiance due to God as king is now going to earthly political rulers instead. And God is saying, I will give you what you want. I will give you what you're demanding from me. But I'm also going to warn you. That's a form of judgment. Sometimes getting what we want is a form of judgment. You know, I uh, recently ran my son James through the drive-through at McDonald's recently on the way to an appointment. And this was actually the first time that James had ever had McDonald's. Now, if you like McDonald's, that's great. No, no, no judgment here, right? But uh, our family, we try to kind of avoid the fast food generally, right? And so James had McDonald's and he loved it. You know, he came home that day, he was like, oh my gosh, it was McDonald's, it was so good. He's telling his brother, his brother I was like, oh, and they come to us and like, we want McDonald's every day. <laughs> So my wife and I were like, all right, we're watching Supersize Me. (laughs) If you guys remember the show Supersize Me, this documentary, 2004, Morgan Spurlock, and this guy basically decides, hey, I'm going to eat nothing but McDonald's every day, three times a day for a month, and so breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And if he goes up to the register, to the cashier, and they ask him, you want me to supersize it, he has to say yes, right? And so over the course of this month, you watch it just destroy his physical and his psychological health. He he gains 24 pounds, like a 13% body mass increase. His cholesterol just spikes and goes through the roof. He has these crazy mood swings, he starts to experience sexual dysfunction, and his doctor is like, dude, you're gonna die, you gotta stop this, you can't go the whole month, you're gonna die, and he finds, it starts to find like it's like addictive, like cigarettes, he's got this craving for it, and it ended up taking him 14 months afterwards to lose the weight, and so we watch this, and then we ask our boys, you know, so you guys still want to eat McDonald's, and my other son Jake, he's like, I want to eat it 6 million days a year, <laughs> Not that many days in a year, buddy. But (laughs) six million days in a row, he's going. Giving them what they want, McDonald's every day, would be a form of judgment. Life without God is a form of judgment. Rejecting God as king and living life on your own terms, it's like living on Big Macs. It's like living under the reign of King Ronald and eating the food at the king's table, right? And it's going to unravel you. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but over time, it is going to unravel you. It's not the life that you were made for. This raises the question for us, what are you demanding from God? Like, are there things that you want that he doesn't want for you? Are there things that you're demanding that don't align with his ways and his kingdom? Be careful what you wish for, because sometimes the scariest thing might be God giving it to you. Well, and what will be the end of result of all this will be slavery. Verse 17, again, he says that, um, and you shall be his slaves. In that day, you will cry out because of your king. That's language from Egypt. Egypt of slavery and crying out. And what God is saying here, what many scholars have called this is an unraveling of the Exodus. That God delivered his people, he brought them out from their bondage, out from slavery, he brought them into the land, he established them and gave them a foundation for life together with him. And now what is beginning here is the long, slow unraveling that will ultimately lead them back into exile and bondage. Making anything ultimate other than God ultimately results in slavery. Getting what you want can lead to slavery. Uh, Many have observed and compared uh, these kind of famous two novels, 1984 and Brave New World. Now, these were both two of the most famous novels of the 20th century. Uh, They were both dystopian visions of the future, but there were very different, in fact, almost radically opposite visions of that future. In 1984, this was George Orwell's novel. He famously depicted future society as like totalitarianism with mass surveillance. He was like Black Mirror before Black Mirror, ahead of its time, and this was control from the outside in. And for him, this was a depiction of the direction of like communism and where things were going there. Led to one kind of form or version of slavery. But for Aldous Huxley in Brave New World, it was a, a different kind of vision. It was a different kind of world where one can do what they want, where life was marked by pleasure and drugs and the freedom, not from the, the freedom from the inside out to kind of have your heart's desires, but it led to a different kind of enslavement, a different kind of corruption in society as a whole. And as Many have observed in the West, it is Huxley's vision that won out. We are living in a brave new world where we have the freedom to do what we want, but it has led to a different kind of slavery, a society marked by anxiety and depression and loneliness and the weight of needing to create meaning for ourselves and craft an identity for ourselves rather than receiving it as gift from our maker. Our society's rejection of God as king, this passage would have us consider, whether that is a form of judgment that leads over time to an unraveling, to a kind of slavery. But there is hope because there is a king, another king, a better king whose name is Jesus, a king who doesn't come to take, 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 but rather to give, give, give. The gospel says a king who came not to serve, but to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A king who has come and said, For my people, that you will not lord it over one another like the Gentiles do, but rather whoever is to be first will become the last, will be the servant, will lay your life down. As I, Jesus, he says, am modeling for you and laying my life down for you. Redemption Church, there is a king who can liberate you from slavery. There is a king who can undo your unraveling and pull the threads of your life back together. There is a king who can restore you and bring you wholeness. We want another king, a better king. We want this king, Jesus. We want you, King Jesus. That is our heart's cry as a people, is to actually say, we want a king, but in a different way, and the cry of the people here is to say, No, God, we want you as our King. We want King Jesus. But Israel did not. And in verse 19, God says, goes on, he says to, says this, says, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, catch that, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. God says, here you go. God essentially says here, here you go, and he gives them what they want. I find fascinating that phrase, verse 22, obey their voice. That's fascinating because up to this point in the Torah and in the Scriptures, the emphasis has been on God saying, hey, listen and obey my voice. But now God is giving them over. Okay, you don't want to obey my voice. Obey their voice. This is like uh, C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce. He makes this observation saying, at the end of the day, there are two kinds of people. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And there are those to whom God says, thy will be done. God is essentially saying here, thy will be done. Samuel, obey their voice. God is giving them democracy, in a sense. He is giving them the will of the people. He was giving them their collective voice. As has been said, democracy isn't necessarily bad politics, but bad math. A thousand corrupt minds can be just as bad as one corrupt mind, right? Now, I'm a fan of democracy. I'm grateful to live in one, like, don't email me this week, right? Like, checks and balances are good for society and good in a fallen world. I tend to agree with Winston Churchill, who said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others that have been tried, right? <laughs> now, I'm grateful to live in a democracy, but church, here's the point, is that our ultimate hope is not in a democracy or in any other form of earthly government. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. That is where our ultimate hope is found. It is in the rule and reign of King Jesus, which we want to align our lives with today, which raises the question, how should we respond to the overturning of Roe versus Wade this week? a monumental decision of the Supreme Court that sparked national protests and debate and will likely exacerbate polarization and division in the season ahead. This is actually a good case study for what we're talking about today. And so I want to suggest three things, three things for how we as followers of Jesus should respond. And the first is this, that we want to celebrate. We wanna celebrate because many of you have committed your lives to the pro-life cause. Many of you have sacrificially loved and served in crisis pregnancy centers with adopted children, providing foster care, supporting young moms, advocating for the dignity of the unborn, one of the most vulnerable people groups in our society. Many of you have sacrificed and worked with broken hearts to end this injustice, so we wanna say, thank you, this is a cause for celebration. Also, this isn't the end, but the beginning. Like the work has just begun. I like the way Justin Gaboni from The End Campaign put it this week when he said, Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Time to double down on protecting and supporting and advocating for our sisters with crisis pregnancies. Pro-women and pro-child. The whole life project. So we want to celebrate, and second, we want to be prophetic, not partisan. We want to be prophetic, not partisan, that we need to think not like a Democrat, not like a Republican, but like a Christian. And in our partisan polarized culture, King Democrat can sometimes say, we care for the woman, and King Republican can sometimes say, we care for the baby, but King Jesus says, we care for them both, right? King Democrat at times can say, hey, we don't tell a woman what to do with her body, and generally, big picture in other areas, I get that, that's true, but King Jesus says there's another body involved here. King Republican, at times, there can be a shaming of women who've had abortions with rhetoric and all that can be demeaning. And King Jesus says, we are not going to shame women who've had abortions, that this if that's you, Jesus is for you. The gospel is not only pro-life, it's also pro-grace, and it is for us all. So we want to celebrate. We want to be prophetic, not partisan. But third, we want to be gracious. Right? We, how, I know many of you are asking, like, how do I talk with friends and neighbors and coworkers who land in a different place, who are maybe angry, sad, hurting, or frustrated right now? And a few pro-tips here. Like, A listen and ask questions, right? Like don't gloat, don't be rude. People can have, on both sides, can have strong opinions here and asking things like, tell me more or what do you mean? Things like that can open up conversations and promote understanding. Don't get into mean-spirited arguments on social media, right? Doesn't change anybody's mind. Get with people in person. Have conversations in person. It changes the dynamic when you're in person. We want to be about a common table in a conflicted world. So A, listen and ask questions. B, lead with your equal value for the woman and the child. It's true that we value the unborn child as one of the most, un, one of the most vulnerable people groups in our society, yet in our polarized culture, many assume that means that you're against the woman. And it goes a long way to empathize with the panic, the isolation, and shame of an unintended pregnancy many can feel, the overwhelming distress which causes many women to choose abortion. So lead with your value for the woman and the child. And C, don't be ashamed of your convictions. We want to be kind, but we also want to be clear. Uh, We love King Jesus who welcomes the children and defends the vulnerable. And our first allegiance is not to any other earthly ruler, but to King Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth. So we want to celebrate, we want to be prophetic, not partisan, and we want to be gracious. Now zooming out into the bigger picture here, the invitation for all of us this morning is to come to Jesus, the true king. That Jesus is the true and rightful king of the world. I'm struck here that it's not actually wrong to desire for a king, for a leader, a ruler, but it's which king? And Jesus is a good king and a better king. It strikes me in uh, verse 20 here, where the people declare why they want a king, and they say it's that he may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. What we find is that all those things things are actually good things that we find in Jesus. Like Jesus judges us, he corrects us, and he calls us to align our lives with his kingdom. And Jesus goes out before us, he has already gone all the way out before us to the cross, to hell and back, to be with us forever. And Jesus continues to fight our battles as our king who is ruling and reigning. And so as we come to the table this morning, As we come to the bread and wine of Christ's body given and of his blood shed, we come to King Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ, this table is for you this morning. And this table represents the place where he has borne our judgment on our behalf, where he has gone before us. The God who continues to fight our battles on our behalf and he unites, he calls us to come and unite our lives with him, to receive him. And so the invitation this morning, wherever you may be at, wherever you may be coming from, the invitation is to Jesus, the true king. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we declare that we want a king, but we want a different kind of king. Lord, we want you as our king. God, we are gathered here today because we want to be a people, Jesus, who align our lives with your kingdom. God, even if that means it ends up crossing some of the lines and boxes of our society today, God, we choose faithfulness to you. God, we want to be people who are faithful to you. God, we repent and we lament of the ways that we have rejected you as king, ways that we have maybe ran from you and lived on our own steam, God. And and God, we want to leave behind the other rulers, the other idols, the other things that ultimately take, take, take and can lead to a place of slavery and distance from you. God, we want to know the life that comes through intimacy and union with you, our king. God, I pray for any this morning whose lives are at a place where they feel unraveled. Maybe they've been serving another ruler, living under a different kingdom, God, and it's brought them to a place where the threads of their lives just feel frayed and torn and pulled apart. Spirit of the living God, Spirit of Jesus, I pray that you would minister to your people and that you would heal and restore and pull the threads of their life back together in closeness and proximity to you. Jesus, your kingdom, is an eternal kingdom that is stable, unchanging, and true. You are above us, you are before us, and you are ultimately coming to be with us together. And so, God, we stake our lives on you and give you our full allegiance, Jesus, as the rightful king of heaven and earth. It's in your name, and it's for your glory that we pray. Amen.